Can you put your hands together? Give the Lord some praise. Thank you, mighty God. Thank you, mighty God. Amen, 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 amen. He is still in the miracle working business. He's still in the miracle working business. And I'm thankful his power has not diminished, his power has not subsided. But he gets better the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. And I'm excited to be called one of his. Amen, amen. We're thankful for his hand upon our lives. Amen. Thankful he's still working miracles. Amen. One of those miracles we celebrate with Sister Leanne Trinidad. And excited about what God is doing there. That's a miracle. We believe that God performed a miracle on Miracle Sunday, amen, and uh, we're excited that the Trinidads will be bringing another Trinidad into our uh, family before too long, and we're excited about that. Can't have enough of them. That's a good couple. We're still receiving reports daily on what God did on that one Sunday, one Sunday. What was special about that Sunday? nothing it's not a special day on the calendar other than we just said we're going to believe God we're going to fast prior to that service and we're going to enter into that one service with anticipation with faith and we're going to believe God for miracles and here we are months months later still recounting miracles from that one Sunday but I want to tell you it can happen any Wednesday any Sunday any Sunday night anytime we get together should be a common occurrence. God bless you. You may be seated. We welcome our hyphen group in here tonight. They have been um, upgrading their hyphen room and painting in there, and so they're with us tonight. So we welcome them. What a great time we had over the weekend. A powerful worship service Sunday morning. The Holy Ghost moved in and uh, it was just so powerful at the end of our worship service Sunday morning and then Sunday night, I think might be the biggest Christmas party despite there being a literal monsoon falling, might be the biggest Christmas party we've ever had. So much so that next year we're going to rent a venue 
So next year's Christmas party will not be in the chapel. We'll rent a venue for that, uh, which is exciting. So thank you to all that came and participated and was a part of that. We had a great time, um, and the food was delicious, and we got the food quick. It was, man, it was awesome. They did a great job. This Sunday morning will be our Christmas Eve candlelight service. If you have a battery-operated candle, or if uh, you can find in your Christmas budget the means to purchase a single candlelight or candle, battery-operated candle, bring that Sunday. Uh, We'll have some here, so if you don't have one, uh, don't worry. Come on, we'll have one here for you. But if you've got one or you can get one prior to coming Sunday, uh, bring that with you. We're going to do something special. It's going to be kind of different, unique, unlike anything we've done on Christmas Eve. So we're looking forward to that. Christmas Eve. No uh, services, obviously, uh, Sunday night. And then, of course, our uh, Christmas or our New Year's Eve service uh, Sunday morning, and then we're having a 1030 watch night service as well where we will take communion, and that will be a great time as well. We have been in a series entitled God's Holiness and Ours and ours. Tonight, we're going to delve into the lesson entitled, Empowered by the Spirit to be Holy. Empowered by the Spirit to be Holy. Let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you Holy, somebody say holy. That's completely, that's mind, body, spirit, every facet of you. The very God of peace sanctify you. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are made up of three distinct parts, spirit, the timeless, eternal part of us, our soul, which is most often referred to as our emotions or thoughts, and our body, which is our flesh, preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Who will do it? He will do it. He will do it. Acts chapter 15 and verse 7. We're going to drop in on somewhat of an awkward, contentious situation going on in the early church. And uh, find out what's going on. And when there had been much disputing, imagine that, in a brand new church. Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, ye not know... You know how that a good while ago, verse 8, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, and God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us, verse 9. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts 
by faith. He said, they're Gentiles, but they're just like you. There's no difference in them. God gave them the same Holy Ghost He gave you. He at another point in Scripture said, because we heard them speak in tongues as we did. So He said, they're just like us. They got the same thing we got. Verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. He's referencing the law of the Old Testament. No one could do that. No one was able to do that. Why are you putting upon them the yoke that you couldn't even bear? Verse 11, and we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Even as they. One more verse of Scripture, Romans Chapter 6 and verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Someone say newness. It's very important you understand. This is a brand new life. This is not a life that's just a little better. It's not just a remodeled life. It's not just a better version of who you used to be. It is a new life, brand new life, empowered by the Spirit to be holy. The truth about God that we want to learn tonight, be reminded of, is that the Spirit empowers us to live transformed lives. Only by the Holy Ghost can you live holy. So if you turn me off after this right here and you tune me out or you get distracted thinking about what you got to do the rest of the week or your Christmas shopping, if you remember this right here, this will be the most important thing. It is the Holy Ghost that allows you to live holy. And if you are not being led by the Spirit and led by the Holy Ghost, you are bound in legalism and you can obey a thousand rules and you can check all of the boxes, but you are wasting your time. Only the Holy Ghost is uh, the, what allows us and motivates us and challenges us to live holy. And so the truth for my life is I will be filled with the Holy Ghost and walk in the newness of life. How many would say tonight that, admit, I'm a perfectionist? I'm a perfectionist. I, when I hang a picture on the wall, it, I measure it. I, I, it has to be perfect. So if you're not ashamed of raising your hand and say, I'm a perfectionist, there's a few people like, I would raise my hand, but I want to raise my hand perfect. Is this high? How high should I raise it? Both hands, one hand. Some of you are literally overthinking how to raise your hand right now. That's how, how much of a perfectionist you are. I love perfectionists. I'm not one of them, for sure. I, I like linking up with perfectionists because they help me with details. But when people say, I guess I'm just a perfectionist, sometimes the tone is apologetic, like they're sorry for that. Sometimes it's with pride, but often it's a mixture of both. It's expressing the odd relationship they share with this common psychological characteristic. More than just being competitive or striving for excellent, 
those that suffer from being a perfectionist, it's the unrelenting feeling of never being quite good enough. No matter how good it is, all that you can think about is it could be better. No matter how good the meal is, I have a friend of mine who's a great cook. He's a great cook. Brother Chavis. He's a perfectionist, though. And he'll cook an amazing steak, and he'll put it on the table. And all he'll talk about is, well, I meant to do this. I was going to turn it over a few minutes ago, and it should have been that. And I'm like, this is great. This is amazing. But he's a perfectionist when it comes to grilling. And so it's that unrelenting feeling that it could be better. Sadly, the effects of perfectionism do not improve with age or maturity. You don't grow out of being a perfectionist. Researcher Martin Smith showed that people who scored high in perfectionism categories became more prone to negative emotions like anger, anxiety, irritability as they get older. Because you can control less and less as you get older. And yet you still want things perfect. And so it's this... This weird, awkward place in your life. As you get older, you still want things perfect, but you don't have the ability to get anywhere near, even where they used to be. Surprisingly, they also became less conscientious over time. Clearly, something has gone or is going terribly wrong with our world. As Richard Winter writes of this looming cultural crisis in perfecting ourselves to death, he said this, These seductive sirens of the advertising and Hollywood cultures that surround us stimulate our partially conscious fantasies and dreams of perfecting ourselves. They increase our dissatisfaction. We find ourselves discontent with who we are and what we possess. Advances in technology have only enhanced their power and influence. And it's complicated by the fact that the dangerous influences in the pursuit of perfection are intertwined with many good fruits. Mean, meaning, you can be a perfectionist and that's not always a bad thing. And so there is that that carrot that dangles just outside of perfectionism that we reach for. And yet, when it is in pursuit of perfecting ourselves, it is a journey that will lead, lead to dissatisfaction. But there's more to it. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5 and 48. Here... In these words of Jesus, we arrive at the real problem that everybody in this room faces. The real problem of perfectionism. Mistakes and underperformance on the job, on the athletic field, or in the school. Those can be shrugged off. Those can be dismissed with a simple reminder, well, no one's perfect. Earlier in the same chapter, Jesus raised the stakes of kingdom living impossibly high for his audience when he pronounced, For I say unto you in Matthew 5 and 20, that except your righteousness shall exceed 
the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Their self-righteousness was way ahead of everyone else. They prayed loudly in the streets. They made a big show of checking all the boxes. And so it seemed as if they were being asked, the disciples here, to do something that was impossible. Is the call to holiness, this is so important, I want you to pick up on this. This is a, a little deeper than normal, but I want you to pick up on this. Is the call to holiness just a religious disguise for the pressures of perfectionism? The call to holiness is, in many ways, the exact opposite of that. But we got to be reminded of it. Kevin Lehman suggests that perfectionism is what many people would think of as a lifestyle, which include patterns of behavior linked to goals in our life. They're ingrained in us. Even by the time that we are four and five years old, a perfectionist is already struggling with perfectionism. I've got a nephew right now. He struggles with perfectionism. And, and there's other diagnoses for it and other names for it. But if he sits down, I, I had a breakfast with him recently, and he sat down and went to cut his waffles, and, and the person that cut his waffles did not cut them in perfect squares. And he was done. He was done. He wanted no part of that waffle because of, in his mind, it needs to be exactly perfect. And so if perfectionism is a lifestyle, even ingrained in us at a very early age in our natural birth, then holiness, brothers and sisters, is the lifestyle and what should be ingrained in us when we are linked in our new birth. Something should happen to us when we repent of our sins and we are baptized in the name of Jesus and we receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost and we are born again. Something should happen to us in right there that should start saying, I want to be better. I want to be closer to God in every area, in my mind, in my thinking, in my conduct, in every area of my life. I want to be more like God. And so in Acts, where we read tonight, there was a great debate. An argument had broke out. Dissension had broke out in Acts 15. And this turned to be turned out to be kind of a watershed moment for the early church. The Gentiles had already been granted full inclusion into the church as equal members. So they were welcomed into their church. They're not Jews, but hey, we welcome you. Why? Because they had received the same Holy Ghost that the Jews had received. And Peter made that clear. And so in some ways, that point of view is very simplistic. But it's easy to forget that probably close to a decade earlier, the Jerusalem church had already considered the matter of Gentiles being in the church as a thing that they welcomed. This miraculous conversion at Cornelius' household. We talked about it several weeks ago. Peter was brought before the church to give an explanation. Why are you down there preaching to those Gentiles? Why are you welcoming them into the church? Peter said, all I can tell you is they spoke in tongues just like we did. They got the same thing we got. And so if you got a problem with them being in the church, you can take it up with God because he's the one that gave them what we got. 
And so that had already been settled. He gave a full account of what had happened. And the Bible says they held their peace and ceased debating. And so God also had granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. And for all intents and purposes, the matter appeared to be settled without any reference to the Torah. And the fact makes the actions of these visitors here in Acts 15 to Antioch so problematic because it appears like what was already settled, what had already been debated relative to the Gentiles being welcomed into the church, now we were going back and discussing that again. A reversal on a matter already decided. And so in advocating for the requirement of circumcision for all of the Gentile converts, they were really argument, arguing for a reinstatement of the entire Mosaic law. And so those that were upset in that passage of Scripture were saying, they should have to go back and do what was required in the Old Testament. They should go back and have to do those things before they can get into the church, welcomed into the church. And so it was kind of a reversal. I thought we'd already settled this. The second and much larger problem was that this approach to Gentile conversion really positioned Christianity as just like any other sect of Judaism. The Sadducees or the Pharisees. However, as Paul himself, a former Pharisee, argued the coming of Christ marked the end or the completion of the law. Salvation could no longer be found through observing the law alone. Salvation was found in faith in Jesus Christ and being born again. And so he was making it clear in this moment, and we're leading up to a very important point, that you cannot expect them to go back and do the things that was required in the Old Testament when you yourself could not even carry that yoke. You're expecting them to do something you haven't done just because you're a Jew. And so what was at stake here was the very nature of salvation. And so no wonder there was a big conversation. No wonder there was a big argument. In fact, Acts 15 and 2 said there was, quote, no small dissension or disputation. It was a big argument. Imagine if in our church we decided that, well, if you're from this country or you come from Johnson County, this is what you got to do to be saved. But everybody that lives in Wake County, you ain't got to do that. There would be no small dissension or disputation. And yet, essentially, that's what was going on. Gentiles, you're required to obey the Mosaic law, and yet you Jews do not. And so there was the argument. And as the account is made clear, the Judean ambassadors to Antioch, Antioch were acting without portfolio or from the Jerusalem church. Someone said a vocal faction was there. It wasn't like just one or two people was stating this. This was a large group that was having a problem with the way the Gentiles were being welcomed in the church. The dissension was so sharp and the argument was so great that the leadership here identified as apostles and elders went into a closed session and shut the door. And it was here in this closed session 
that Peter rose to speak for the last time in Acts. First, it was God, not Peter, who initiated the mission to Cornelius' household to proclaim the gospel by mouth. It was God himself that welcomed the Gentiles into the church. In his commentary, David Williams points out that his phrase was something of a signature phrase in Acts, by my mouth. In those other contexts, it was used to introduce quotations and allusions to the writings of David and the prophets. Notably, it referred here to Peter's own words when he was clearly equating the authority of the gospel he proclaimed to Cornelius with the authority of the Old Testament. Peter's second point was that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost was positive evidence that the Gentiles saving belief. The same evidence, the same thing they received, spirits outpouring meant God had purified and sanctified their hearts just like He did ours. Through the grace of the Lord, that's how they entered into the church. That's how they can be a part of the church, Peter was arguing. They don't have a separate set of rules. There's not a, a separate requirement for them. I like what Peter said, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. <laughs> Note the clever twist. Peter had faith that his present Jewish audience would thought they were saved and was self-righteously pointing to the Gentiles, wondering if they should be in the church. Peter said that they could be saved as well, just like the Gentiles. <laughs> Peter said, you boys are so self-righteous, but I'm praying that you're saved. You're trying, to, you're trying to make this thing so stringent and so difficult. Gentiles may not get in, but I'm praying you're saved. And most pertinent to the present issue was the unspoken concern about the uncircumcised and non-observant Gentiles introducing unholy impurities into the community of the believers. And so they were so concerned that they had obeyed all of the Old Testament laws. The Jewish believers of the church in the book of Acts were so concerned that they weren't being holy enough. They were so concerned that they weren't being as holy as everybody else. They weren't checking all the boxes. And Peter emphasized that this concern was a non-issue since the believers had received that baptism of the Holy Ghost. And if God thought them good enough to be filled with His Spirit, then that was good enough for them. If you were a convert to Pentecost and you recall your journey to holiness, some of you may remember that journey in holiness, sometimes for some people it's very easy. Some people, they get the Holy Ghost, baptized, and I mean, they just, they just give up everything. Anything that they see coming between them and God, they just give it up. They just start living for God, walking in the newness and the holiness. And others, it's a journey, it's a process, it takes time. Although Peter's testimony was critical, James held a position of crucial authority as he was the current pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And because of his attachment to the Jewish law, in a move that probably shocked the Pharisees that were there, James, who they thought the pastor would be on their side, wholeheartedly endorsed Peter's perspective on Gentile salvation. 
He wholeheartedly stood behind him and helped him to remind those that were there. God filled them with the Holy Ghost and welcomed this into the church, the same church, the same body that you are a part of, even if they are Gentiles. That prophecy envisioned a restored Israel that included non-Israelites as a part of the coming kingdom with no mention of circumcision or Torah observance uh, as a requirement for entrance. Uh, In fact, we read it. He said, to add that yoke upon those believers would have been unnecessarily troublesome and unrequired, not required. James argued since the Spirit would have already been active in their lives. They've got the Holy Ghost. So what are you going to convince them to do that the Holy Ghost is not going to convince them to do? And so I want you to get the picture here because we're leading up to a very crucial point as it pertains to us being empowered by the Spirit to be holy. And so these Jewish members, these elders and those of the church uh, were requiring the Gentiles to do things uh, that were in the Old Testament that they were not even required to do. And Peter and James were saying, wait just a minute. Uh, That Holy Ghost that God gave them uh, when they spoke in tongues, uh, it will help them uh, to be as holy uh, as God requires them to be. Holiness is an inside job. It's the power of the Holy Ghost that helps you be holy. I ask you the question. Do you become holy and then get saved? Or do you get saved and then become holy? Holiness is sanctification. When I receive the Holy Ghost, it's then I become more like God every single day. It's only then, when I'm born again, that I start becoming more like God. And so, these Jewish elders were being corrected by Peter and the pastor. Said, hey, they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Holy Ghost within them will start that process. One final point is important. The guidelines that James suggested for the Gentile converts should not be seen as backtracking. It should not be seen as them doing less than what the Jews were required to do on the claim that they were sanctified by the work of the Holy Ghost. In fact, the guidelines were given, were aimed at maintaining fellowship in the church, not maintaining that the Gentiles were in a saved status. But they were to be a part of the body just like anyone else. It's important that their presence was an important reminder that the church is a society whose structure remains profoundly sensitive to the selfless awareness and the needs of others. What does that mean to me, Pastor? It means not everybody's going to grow at the same pace. Right? And I know you may have come into the church... And I mean, you may have, two weeks later, you'd thrown everything away, stopped going to all the places you should have been going, you stopped drinking, stopped smoking, stopped cussing, stopped chewing, stopped all that in two weeks. I'm happy for you, that's wonderful. But don't come into the church and expect everybody to grow at the same pace you're growing. And the Jews were like, hey, wait just a minute. They ain't having to do what we had to do. 
The process is not the same. What I'm telling you is uh, when they receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost uh, and they are in a process uh, of progress, uh, do not sit there and condemn and judge and point your finger at them and make sure they're doing everything that you ought to think they're doing holy. You congratulate them. You grow with them. You encourage them. They are part of the same body you are a part of. And I like what Peter said. He said, brothers, maybe we shouldn't be talking about whether they're saved or not. But the fact that you're so self-righteous, maybe we should be talking about whether you're saved or not. Come on, somebody. You're so tore up about making sure they're doing everything they're supposed to do that you've gotten out of line. You're not loving your brother, right? You're not encouraging your brother. You're not in unity and harmony and fellowship with the body of Christ. And because you're out of line here, Worrying about what they're doing. I'm more concerned about your salvation than theirs. When you study the character of Peter, he never had a problem saying what was on his mind. (laughs) And so it's important that we understand that it is the work of the Holy Ghost that sanctifies me. I become closer to God and I become holier every day with the Holy One in me. Holiness is very simply defined. You've heard me say this many times. Holiness is very simply defined as the Holy One in us. And holiness is not achieved until the Holy One is in you. And it is not maintained. I don't care how many boxes you check. I don't care what you're wearing. I don't care how how holy you think you are. You are not holy unless you're walking in the Spirit. Holiness is only maintained by the Spirit. That is in you. And so it's important that we understand that. There's a great video testimony that I'd like to show you tonight. In a society culture and sometimes in our church environment, the idea of perfectionism or the standard of doing all the right things all the time is a glaring theme. When it comes to being holy, we must appear to be perfect, even if that means internally things are not quite right. Some, at times self-righteously, meet every goal and milestone and check every box, while others refuse to try simply because the task of being holy is too hard. Our relationship with God and being holy is not about perfection here on earth, it's about progress. The call to holiness is not a religious guise full of rules, regulations, and standards, but a call to relationship, the greatest and most fulfilling relationship. It's about being formed into the image of Jesus daily so that we can have a pure and open relationship with God. That relationship provides us with access to all that we need and power to be our best selves. It also allows others to see Him in us more clearly. Holiness is not about checking boxes or being perfect. It's about allowing the Lord to empower you to be who He's created you to be. I had a conversation with a friend not too long ago who asked me why I thought so many people were falling away or losing hope when it came to pleasing the Lord, because after all, that's what holiness is all about. I thought for a moment, but the answer came quickly when I remembered when I first fell in love with Jesus. Not one time did during my first few months of new life did anyone tell me that I needed to dress differently or quit this or that to look the part. They simply showed me how to love Jesus. They taught me how to pray and the value of being in relationship with God. I realized my desire to be holy did not come from the desire to meet their expectations. It came from my desire to meet His. And that, my friends, is the goal. Everybody say amen. So this Pharisee faction we 
talked about tonight in the Jerusalem church wrongly understood the means of a believer's sanctification. When we say sanctification, that means growing up. Sanctification, holiness, growing up, all same terms. They still operated with the old law-based understanding. And ultimately, it led to a works-based view of salvation. It said, I'm saved because I've made myself holy. And a lot of people think that. I'm saved because I've made myself holy, rather than acknowledging I've been made holy because I've been saved. And it's so important that you understand that. And that is why Paul so likely reacted with such passion in his teaching because he himself had been a Pharisee who probably believed much the same way at an early point. It is easy for us to unconsciously, without even thinking about it, adopt a similar view today. We may see our holiness as the basis of our salvation rather than recognizing our salvation is the basis of our holiness. I don't live holy because I'm trying to gain God's approval or I'm trying to get to heaven. I live holy because He filled me with His Spirit and I'm in love with Him. I want to please Him and be more like Him. I can't be holy enough to make heaven. I can't check enough boxes to go to heaven. I do it because I love Him. And I'm full of His Spirit. And I want to please Him. And I want to represent Him. More bluntly, we erroneously might see salvation as the work God does for us and holiness as the work we do for Him. That's not correct. Holiness is not work I do for Him. To be honest, nothing could be more spiritually deadly. Our pursuit of holiness must begin with the recognition that it is God's work in our lives. If there is any part of me that is holy, it is not my doing. It is the God working inside of me. And if there's any part of me that resembles him, looks like him, and reflects him, it's because he's living inside of me. Not because I have managed to do all of the right things. In his writings, Paul carefully paralleled the believer's experience of salvation, of death, burial, and resurrection. The outpouring of the Spirit that Jesus described in Nicodemus as a spiritual rebirth. Being born again. And for this metaphor to work, it's important that resurrection is not the same as revivification which means to be revived, to be brought back to life, to have our death reversed, if you will, but to be resurrected, be given a new life on the other side of death. It's not because we're better than we used to be or we've somehow dead. I mean, often I think people think when, you know, when we're baptized that we, we go down, we're baptized, we come back and we're a better person. No, you're not even the same person at all. The old you is still down there. And the only way holiness works is if you understand that I'm not who I used to be. I've experienced a resurrection. And this resurrection life is a gift to all believers. Yes, Christians may still sin, but we no longer live under sin's dominion. We have power through the sanctifying spirit of God to resist and defeat sinful strongholds in our life. Sanctification or holiness it's not our achievement for God. We don't hand out holiness awards around here. Come on, somebody. We hand out servants' towels. We don't hand out holiness 
awards. Because holiness is not our achievement for God. It's God's achievement in us. Our work in sanctification is simply yielding to the Spirit's work in us. Can I tell you, in 20-something years of being in a pastoral role of some form or fashion, I've never had any priority that had a problem with holiness that was walking in the Spirit. Anybody that's ever had a problem with holiness was carnal. You know why? Because holiness is a spiritual job. And if you're praying, loving God, walking in the Spirit, in the Word, and you desperately desire to be more like God, holiness is not a problem for you because you want to be closer to God and to reflect Him and to be more like Him. It is only when we are trying to do it in of ourselves. Not only that, it's important to understand that when we try to do an end of ourselves, we will find the bare minimum. But when you're in love with Jesus Christ, you're not finding out what you can do and get by with and still make heaven. When holiness is the work of the Holy Ghost inside of you, I'm here to see how close I can get to God, not how close I can get to the world and still be saved. And so it's important that we understand that. Paul emphasized that the call to sanctification impacts every domain of our life. Holiness encompasses our inward attitudes and outward actions as well as our behavior towards fellow believers and non-believers. You know, holiness is as much about the way you act as the way you dress. <laughs> Congratulations, your dress is dragging the ground, but you got a rotten attitude. Come on, somebody. You want to talk about holiness, I want to tell you, much more important than the way you're dressing is the fruit of the Spirit. Because if, the Holy Ghost, if holiness is the Holy Ghost working inside of you, it should affect the way you talk, the way you treat people, the way you don't talk about people, the way you don't criticize and complain and backbite. And that is much more important than what you walk out of the closet wearing. Anyway. Be patient towards all men. Pray without ceasing. Abstain from the appearance of evil. This is all holiness. And what I'm trying to tell you is, if you fix that, the rest of it's no problem. Get your heart right, and holiness is not a problem. But when you try to check all the boxes, like the church there and the Jews there in the church are wanting the Gentiles to check all the boxes. And Peter said, hey, they got the Holy Ghost. Don't you worry about it. I'm more worried about what you got. And if you will be full of the Holy Ghost, walk in the Spirit, desire to serve God and be the very best saint and Christian you can be, holiness is not a problem. The God who called us to holiness is faithful and will accomplish it for us. He said he would do it for us. That was in our opening verse. In you. Before believers can ever commit to walking in holiness as Scripture defines, they must first admit, commit to walking in the Spirit. You can't walk in holiness if you don't walk in the Spirit. Come on, somebody. A lifestyle of holiness without the inner working of the Spirit is nothing more than the pursuit of self-righteousness, and it will lead to arrogance and despair. You'll walk around the church with your nose up in the air looking at everybody else, wanting to know why they ain't doing this and why they ain't doing that. 
I can't believe they look like that. I can't believe they're still doing that. I can't believe they're still wearing that. I can't believe. And the problem is the Holy Ghost is not working inside of you because if it was working inside of you, you would be on your own pursuit to be more like God and not worrying about everybody else. Holiness is as much the way you treat and look at others as it is the way you carry and conduct yourself. So it's so important that we understand holiness. We are empowered by the Spirit to be holy. We are not empowered because we are holy. So important we understand that. Worse, we end up in the same problem we read about in Acts 15 where we fail to recognize the work of the Holy Ghost in our own brothers and sisters just because they didn't follow our rules. You ever seen people that thought they were so holy that every conviction that they had suddenly became a doctrine for everyone else? I appreciate your convictions. I don't ever refute, argue with anyone that has a conviction, even about some things we do here at the local church. As a church family, as a church body, there are some things that we may do, events that we may have that you personally may not want to be a part of. You'll never catch me as a pastor trying to come change your mind. I'm happy for your convictions. I'm excited about that. I wish more people had convictions. But what you can never allow yourself to do is allow your convictions to become somebody else's doctrine where you wag your finger at them and you tell them how unholy they are and unrighteous they are and how sinful they are. What you're doing is exactly what was happening in Acts chapter 15 when they said, wait just a minute. They ain't doing what we do. And Peter said, hey, wait just a minute. They got the Holy Ghost. And you worry about yourself and the Holy Ghost will help them become what they need to become. Thank God. God for your convictions, but don't get on a self-righteous pedestal and make your convictions the doctrine for everyone else. I didn't expect no aisle running on that. I knew that. Come on, somebody. I, I respect and appreciate people in this church so much that have convictions. And they may not be a part of everything we do around this church, but you'll never catch them in a corner somewhere wagging their finger in somebody's face wanting to know why they are. Because this is, a, this is between them and God. And the moment they start doing that, they then become in the camp where Peter said, hey, I'm more worried about that you're saved. <laughs> and so it's important that we understand that holiness is a journey and a process that we are on to become more like God. And so one problem with action-centered focus of perfection is what we be called the slide towards minimum requirements. Being perfect really becomes nothing more than just being better than everyone else. When you have that kind of attitude towards holiness, then really all you're really trying to do is just become better than somebody else in your own eyes. And that is a problem. God is more interested in who we become more than in what we do because if we become Christ-like in our character, someone say character, we will reliably respond on any given situation in a holiness manner. If we become who we are supposed to become, in love with God, walking in the Spirit, praying, we're in the Word. I promise you, holiness is not the problem. <laughs> holiness is not the problem. It's a very real sense as you stand. Holiness is simply the Word for what happens in us as we grow closer to God. That's what happens. Not only does it happen when we draw closer to God... But it happens when we draw closer to our brothers and our sisters in the church. It is more of a byproduct than an independent aim. Holiness is not the pursuit of perfection, but rather the perfection of pursuit. I want to say that again because that encapsulates everything 
we learn tonight. Holiness is not the pursuit of perfection, but the perfection of pursuit. I want to pursue Him. I want to be more like Him. I want to reflect Him more. I want to draw closer to Him. And in that process, holiness is a byproduct of that. A byproduct of that. Pursue God. Pursue relationship. Pursue love. And I promise you, holiness is something that will naturally take place. Naturally take place. Lift your hand and say, God, I want to be more like you. Help me, God, to reflect you in an authentic, real way. Help me, God, to pursue holiness. Not so that I can condemn or judge someone else, God, or live in a self-righteous attitude, but help me to pursue holiness, God, because I want to be more like you. You are holy, God, and I want to wholly be more like you in my mind, in my heart, in my actions, in my conduct, in the way I, I represent you. Help me, God, to be more like you for the right reasons. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone say amen. God bless you. Uh, We look forward to seeing you at our candlelight service. I know it's a busy time of the year, but it's going to be a great service, and we uh, look forward to seeing you there. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.